Hi, I'm Roger Blackmore. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis Church on Long Island in New York. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you want to learn a bit more about our church, then check out our website, genesisli.com. And of course, if you live within traveling distance of us, we'd love to see you in person on Sunday morning, worshiping with us. So here's today's message. Enjoy. So last Christmas, at some point, I was listening to O Holy Night. And as I was listening to it, it struck me, there's a lot of good stuff in those lines. And as I thought about it more, I thought, there is a Christmas teaching series in that song. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to begin this three-week teaching series and actually focusing it on phrases from O Holy Night. The, the carol itself dates back to 1847, which some of you will remember, as I do, was a very good year. So 1847, in a small French town, the, the local priest approached a poet who lived in the town and asked him if he could write a poem for Midnight Mass for Christmas Eve. The poet, who who was named Placide Capot, was quite surprised because he wasn't a frequenter of the church. Um, He was a poet, but he was also the the commissaire of wines for the area. I don't know what that means, but some of you are probably thinking right now that's a dream job, right? So, So he was the commissaire of wine. So he asked him to write it. So Capot was on his way to Paris just after that in a kind of bumpy, rickety coach. And as he was making the journey, he was thinking through what he could remember from Luke's record of the birth of Jesus and like picturing himself in the scene. And as he was doing that, by the time he got to Paris, he had written down the words of what the French call Cantique de Noël. He was very happy about it. In fact, he was so pleased with it, he thought, you know, this is more than a poem to be read. This really should be sung at midnight mass on Christmas Eve. So he got in touch with a friend of his who was a musician and composer, uh, a guy by the name of Charles Adams. And he gave him the words and he asked him if he could write it. Now, Adams was a little taken aback himself because he was Jewish. He didn't believe in this Christmas stuff, and he didn't believe in Jesus as the Savior. However, he loved the poetry, so he wrote the music for Cantique de Noel. And on Christmas Eve in 1847, O Holy Night, for the very first time ever, was heard, and it became the most favorite and best-known Christmas song very quickly throughout France. However, Capot, who wrote it, had a total meltdown where faith was concerned and became an opponent of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic hierarchy weren't too happy with that. And then they found out that the guy who wrote the music was Jewish. And they banned it. So they said it should not be sung anymore. In fact, here's what they said. They they said that it lacked musical taste, and this is a direct quote, there was a total absence of the spirit of religion. Uh, That's the song we just sung, right? 
A total absence of the spirit of religion. But the fact is, the French people loved it so much that they sang it at their homes and at events that they had. But it was banned from being sung in the church. We'll hear a little bit more about that story over the next week or two. But the truth is, here we are 172 years later, and we're singing it. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I want to focus there today and talk about the night God came. The night God came. I guess because there wasn't much money in our family as we were growing up, my parents learned to be very, very careful indeed. And, and, and I must say that thriftiness stayed with my father the whole of his lifetime. And uh, even later in life when we were all off from under their feet and my mother and father were just themselves, he was always very, very frugal. I remember once when we were with him and, and he was wearing a, a, a pair of kind of light brown pants, but they had like a red check in them, a little red line check. And, and I said, Dad, they're interesting. We call them trousers in the old country. I said, they're interesting trousers. He said, yeah, you wouldn't believe it. I paid $2 for these. I said, Dad, I totally believe it. There's a good reason why $2 was all they could get for those trousers, Dad. Nobody else would wear the things. Come on. And we used to tease him because he used to delight in showing us the bargains that he'd got. And it was inevitable. You think, yeah, okay then. I think you were robbed if you paid $2 for those. But the truth is the worth of something, the value of something, is what we are prepared to pay for it. And when Jesus came, he told us the value that God places on every one of us. Listen, how others view us does not define us. How others view us does not define us. I love the story in the Bible where God sent Samuel to anoint a new king for Israel, and he sent him to the home of a guy called Jesse. And uh, when, when Samuel came to Jesse's house uh, with his companions, here's what it says. It says, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, here he, here he is, God's anointed. He was the oldest of Jesse's sons. But God told Samuel, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. See, when Samuel looked at Eliab, he thought, whoa, yeah, he looks kingly. God said, no, not him. I'm not looking at what's there. I'm looking at what's here. And, and so some of you remember this story it, uh, that, that Jesse brought next son, like son number two, son number three, 
And, and Samuel said, no, not him, not him, not him, not him, till, till they basically had exhausted all the sons that were there in the house. Uh, and when they'd come to the end, Samuel said, well, is there anybody else? And, and, and Jesse said, well, well, you know, there's the young kid. He's out looking after the sheep. And Samuel said, bring him in. And David came in, a teenager. And Samuel anointed him to be king of Israel. As far as his family was concerned, it wasn't worth David even showing up for that day's events. But anyway, they needed somebody to stay. So he might as well stay with his sheep because he wasn't going to be involved in this business. Who'd have thunk it? David becomes the king of Israel. How others view us does not define us. The truth is when you and I look at people, we have no idea what's inside. We have no idea really how they are or who they are. That's why in the book of James in chapter 2 in verse 1, it says this. It says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. He's saying to them here, and he goes on and explains. He said, if somebody comes in and they look like they're well-to-do and whatever, and you make a fuss over them, and somebody else comes in who looks like they're kind of down, on, down in their luck, and, uh, and you kind of shove them off to one side, he, he said, what you've done is you've shown discrimination, and you can't love with discrimination. First Peter 2 verse 17 follows up on that theme. It says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Love the family of believers. God who knows everything and everyone was the one who was going to choose a mother for his son. Can you imagine? I mean, I've, I haven't paid a lot, of it in, you know, a lot of attention to it, to, to be honest, but I gather when people are looking sometimes nowadays for a surrogate mother, you know, they do all kinds of, they have all kinds of blood work done and medical records checked and, and they check their academic qualifications and they do personality tests so that you get it all right. Now, God didn't need to do those because he knows that stuff about us. So God then looks through, right? So, so here we are in the whole world. Who do you want to be the mother to your son, the savior of the earth, right? Okay, let's check number one. Where did she graduate from? Let's check number two. How are the family? Let's see if there's more than average craziness in any of her relatives. But when God wanted a mother for Jesus, he went to an obscure town to a girl who was thought to have been probably about 15 years old, and Mary was chosen. You know why? Because God looks inside. Here's what the angel said when the angel came to her in Luke 1 and verse 28. The angel said, went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. God saw what was inside of her, and God chose her. She was the favored one. God was with her. We have no idea of the potential there is in anybody we made. And we have no idea of the journey they've been on either. 
Now, talking about Nazareth, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he, um, he was preaching and a man named Philip heard him and Philip was immediately convinced that this was the Savior. And, and Philip was so excited about it that, that here's what it says. It's, it says in John 1.45, Philip went and found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote of in the law, the one preached by the prophets. It's Jesus, Joseph's son, the one from Nazareth. Nathanael said, Nazareth? You've got to be kidding. But Philip said, come see for yourself. Nathaniel's immediate reaction was, you know, he said, hey, here's the long-awaited Savior of the earth. It's actually Jesus who's from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, a carpenter there. And Nathaniel's response is, the Savior, Nazareth? Really? But he went to find out. Find out. The thing is this. He wrote Jesus off before he'd met him because of where he'd come from. He defined him totally by his past and by his pedigree. But you can't define anybody by their past and by their pedigree, and you shouldn't let anybody try to define you by your past or your pedigree either. An idiotic move in life does not make you an idiot. An uncaring response does not make you uncaring. A failed effort does not make you a failure. Don't let others define you. I'm going to tell you something else. Major sin does not mark the end of life either. Because in God there is forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. I'm, I'm reading each evening through the book of Psalms right now, so uh, a reminder, if you're on that journey with me, we'll be on 57 today. But earlier in the week, I was reading Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by David later in his life when he really messed up. So he had become king of Israel, uh, but ultimately what happened was he had committed adultery with a woman, and he had basically set her husband up to be killed so that he'd be out of the way. And Psalm 51 is, is, is a psalm of repentance, and he says this. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Now, I could spend a whole Sunday morning in that verse. But a couple of quick things I'm going to point out to you. David had done terrible things. His prayer was not, God, restore your salvation to me, because the point is this. Once we are given our lives to Christ and receive the gift of eternal life, then, we are, we, then the fact is we are children of God. He didn't lose his salvation because he sinned. He lost the joy of his salvation. And most of us know what that's like, Right? He said, God, restore to me the, the joy of your salvation. Give me a willing spirit. Help me to do what you want me to do. And then here's what he says. I'm going to teach other people who sin. I'm going to teach them your ways so they turn back to you. So actually, his prayer was that God would help him and use him to turn around his own failure and his own experience and use that to help others back on the track too. 
Major sin does not exclude you from God's plans for you for the future. I don't know who you are or who needed to hear that, but I really felt I should put that in this morning. Where Jesus came from made him unsuitable in the eyes of many. But where you've been does not define you. There was another occasion in the life of Jesus where he healed a blind man. And when he healed this blind man, the religious leaders were really upset about it because a lot of people said, wow, this must be the Savior. And they were totally anti. And and so they, they interviewed the blind man and didn't get satisfactory answers. And then it says this in John's gospel in chapter 9. They called the man back a second time, the man who had been blind, and told him, give credit to God. We know this man is an imposter. And he replied, I know nothing about that one way or the other, but I know one thing for sure. I was blind. I now see. I love that. I love that. I love that. You know, from occasionally I have conversations with people who really think they're really smart and, and they want to try to talk to you about this, that, and the other to do with faith and biblical history and this, that, and the other. And it's like, can I just tell you the one thing? Once I was blind, but now I see. You know, this thing works. That's what really matters. That's what really counts. But you see, the religious leaders wrote Jesus off because he was different. He didn't conform to their patterns. He didn't act the way they wanted. He was different. Listen, let me tell you this. I know it's stating the obvious, but here we go. We're all different. How about that? What did you learn at church today? We're all different. No, that's important to grasp because a lot of us spend most of our lives trying to be like somebody else. We're all different. We are different by design. God made it that way because he wanted it that way. You won't find your worth in the words of others. You won't find your worth in the words of others. How others view us does not define us. Okay, the second thing I want to point out to you today is this. How we view ourselves does not define us. There's a statement that I've heard a number of times. It goes like this. It says, it's not how others see you, it's how you see yourself. And I think, that is a stupid statement. Because actually, most of us see ourselves worse than others see us. Right? That's good. We've got three honest people. It's getting better. Right? We really are. Most of, most of us, I mean, I know there's probably one or two of you out there and you've got no idea what I'm talking about just now. And I know that because, you know, I know it because, you, you know, you, you're just outstanding, remarkable, incredible people. The world is blessed to have and Genesis is absolutely double blessed to have. I know. But here's, the, but here's the reality. For most of us, when we look at ourselves, we can become our own worst enemy, full of insecurities, battling about our own self-worth, uh, and we can be our own fiercest critics. How we view ourselves does not define us. If ever there was a group of people who didn't have a great self-image, we discover them in Luke's gospel when we look at Luke's description of the birth of Jesus in Luke 2. And it says this in Luke 2 and verse 8, there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
There were shepherds. Okay, so we've, we've, we've run through who does God choose to be the mother for his child. Let's think about this. Who does God decide of all the people on earth that he will send an angelic choir to announce the birth of Jesus to? There is only one occasion through the Christmas story in the Bible, there's only one group of people who received a special visitation from angelic beings telling them the Savior was born and they could go and see him. Only one group, and this was them. They were shepherds. God chose there. Now, shepherds, you've got to appreciate. We, we don't have a lot of shepherds around at the moment, right? I don't think any of you are, are shepherds. Um, because if you were, you wouldn't be here because one of the things with shepherds is they had to be out with a sheep 24-7. They were looked upon as a bunch of uneducated, smelly, lowest class, social and religious outcasts, shepherds. They were religious outcasts. Like I said, they never got to worship because they were in the fields. They had to watch the sheep. But then actually they couldn't go because in the Jewish faith, because they looked after sheep, they were unclean. So actually they could not go to the temple to worship. So they were religious outcasts. They were social outcasts because they were always traveling, leading sheep from one place to another to find fresh pastures. They never put down roots for a long period of time. So basically, you know, people in the towns that they'd be shepherding out in the fields outside looked on them with suspicion. If anything went wrong, they'd blame. It must, must have been one of those shepherds. In fact, shepherds were deemed to be so untrustworthy that they couldn't give testimony in, in, a, in a court because their word wasn't to be trusted. That was shepherds. They lacked social skills. They just lived with a group amongst themselves, and most of their conversations were with sheep. They didn't know how to interact with people. They were rough, rugged people. If there was anybody... who had a poor self-image, it would be shepherds. Imagine, you're God, you get to choose. The greatest news ever, the happiest news ever, an event that is going to change the course of history, the birth of your only son, Jesus Christ, the birth of the Savior of the world, the one that Israel had been praying for for generations. Finally, he's come. So where shall we announce it? Which palace shall we choose? And God sends angels to shepherds in the fields. Who do you tell? Who do you tell? Who do you tell? I'm kind of like the Geico advert now saying, what day is it, right? Okay, who do you tell? Who do you tell? Shepherds. God goes to people who would have felt like they were nobody. The Bible is full of people whose self-appraisal wasn't that strong. When God called Moses to leave Israel out of slavery, he said, I can't do this. I can't talk well enough. When Gideon was chosen to deliver Israel from their oppressors, he said, to, he said to God, you know, I'm nobody. I can't do this. Actually, when David came to Coronation Day, they couldn't find him. He was hiding because he felt he couldn't do the job. When Jeremiah the prophet was called by God to speak to the nation, Jeremiah said, oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. I'm too young. How we view ourselves is not what defines us. Let's get to the, cut to the chase now and say this. Here's what really matters. 
How God views us is what really counts. How God views us is what really counts. Among the ministries we're blessed to be able to support on a regular basis is the Teen Challenge Outreach in Guatemala City where Rich and Janet Conte doing incredible work in some terrible, terrible environment. Uh, please keep Rich in your prayers. He's actually in hospital right now because he had a fall this past week and he hurt his head and injured his head and he has some other areas of, of difficulty. So please do keep Rich in your prayers. A few years ago when he was with us, he was talking about the, the ministry in, in Guatemala City and talking about so some of the challenges because it's, you know, it's a dangerous place to be. There are strong gangs and gang fights and drugs are a huge issue down there. And he was telling us all about that and he, he actually shared the story of how uh, a little while before he was with us, he was actually carjacked at gunpoint and they pulled him out and they put him in the trunk of his car and they drove off. And when the car stopped, he totally expected as they opened the trunk, they were going to kill him. Uh, but they opened the trunk and they let him go. And then he said, this is when he was with us that Sunday morning. He said, we'd love to have a missions team from Genesis come down and spend some time with us. That is the worst pitch ever for a missions team, isn't it? Now, I know because there's always a lunatic in every congregation. There's somebody here right now saying, that would be really cool. No. No. We're not sending a missions team to Guatemala. In fact, two years ago, I did go down to visit Rich and Janet in Guatemala. I, I wasn't, you know, it, I was not looking forward to it. And I called him ahead of time, and he said, you know, um, our health hasn't been good. We think, you know, if... If, we, if you, we, we get you a hotel instead of staying with us, I said, that's good. What's the most secure hotel in Guatemala City? So he told me. He said, I think this will be good. I said, okay, now how do I get from the airport to the hotel? And he told me that the, the hotel shuttle is right outside, and you'll see it. It'll be booked and ready for you. They'll pick you up, take you straight to the hotel, and I'll see you later. I said, okay, that's good. And I got outside of the airport, and I couldn't see the shuttle. And I'm freaking out because I'm looking around thinking, you know, who's going to shoot me? Uh, right? No, it's, I'm, I'm sorry. That's where I was at. Uh, and I was looking around and I, and I wandered up one, one way. And then when I came back, I see a guy holding up my name on a thing and waving. I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. And I got into his car and I got to the hotel without being killed. It was great. <laughs> if you list the places in the world I don't want to go, this is a very dangerous thing to say when God's listening, right? If you list the place I don't want, I don't want to go to Guatemala. I really don't want to go to Guatemala. And then I think of God coming to earth. The, the Bible gives us pictures of heaven, but they're, they're, they're just pictures so that we can try to imagine the best thing we can imagine. You know, like folks say, are the streets going to be paved with gold? I don't know. I'll let you know. But, but I don't know, but maybe that's the most beautiful, wonderful thing that, that the writer could imagine, and, and so he wrote that. I, I don't know, because heaven is breathtaking, so here is God in heaven. And God's going to send his son 
to a wicked, sin-cursed earth that ultimately the people will kill him. That's how much God values us. Here's what it says in the book of Romans. Romans 5, 7. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. We can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death. Now, note this last bit. While we were of no use whatever to him. We were of no use to him. But that's how much he valued us. The worth of anything is determined by what people are willing to pay for it. I mean, some of you will go, you know, you might go into a certain coffee establishment and order some intricate coffee that costs $4.50, and you think, oh, this is great. Somebody else says, really? You can get it for a buck at 7-Eleven. But the value is it's what it's worth to you, right? It's what it's worth to you in, in that moment. You know, my father's $2 pants were, were, were worth it to him. I shouldn't say nothing about my father while I'm wearing a jacket like this, I guess. But, <laughs> but, but, but anyway, um, it was worth it to him. When we were looking at property to, to expand the ministry in the Dominican Republic, uh, and we looked at buying the house next door to the church, and then we bought a, a shack and a, a parcel of, little parcel of land next to that, the, the truth is, you, you know what? If they were selling it to a local, they'd charge a certain price. But because they knew Americans were interested, they jacked the price up a bit. Now, we weren't going to say, oh, no, 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 so that's not it. Truth, I mean, in American terms, it wasn't a lot of money. But the truth is, it was worth it to us to pay that price so that the new church could be built and the school could be expanded. You with me there? The worth of something is what you're willing to pay for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How much are you and I worth to God? What's our value before God? God loved us so much that he sent his son into this world to be our savior, to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin so that we could receive the gift of eternal life. Some of you have spent a lifetime being pushed down because you've taken on board what other people say about you and think about you. Some of you have never been been able to rise above the fact that because of what's been thrown at you, your own self-image is somewhere, you know, low down in the gutter. And the message of Christmas today is this, that the value of you as a person to God is that you are worth the sacrifice of His Son. Amen. That makes everybody in this place today a very special Somebody. Jesus came for you. Jesus died for you. And he wants you to know your immeasurable worth. I love, I love our, the statement is covered up now by a Christmas backdrop, but the statement on our walls we come in that in this house, 
And when we were getting ready to have our first service here, which was on Christmas Eve 2013, when we were getting ready, we were looking and we got kind of the, 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 the bones of that from some things we'd seen on the internet. And then we adjusted it and added it and, and made it say things that are relevant to us as a church family. In this house we do, in this house we do, in this house we do. And, and, and I love that. And that's a part of who we are and that's a part of how we are. But, but you know something? I'm not on Facebook, you go. There's another statement I wish we had another wall for. We didn't find this on the internet. Actually, um, it was an original that I threw out one Sunday when I was speaking. And here's what it is. There is not a single living person who is not known to God, special to God, and for whom he does not have a purpose in this life and a place in the life to come. No one. Not a single living person who is not known to God, special to God, and for whom he does not have a purpose in this life and a place in the life to come. Then Jesus came, and the soul found its worth. That's how much God values you today. It's how he views us that really counts. And if you're here today as someone who doesn't really have a relationship with God, maybe you did once and it's just become strained or distant, I want you to know God values you enough that he sent Jesus. And today would be the best of days for you to say, God, I want to come back close to you. And I want to live in relationship with you, the life you planned for me. Let's pray together.